to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you live before a socially distanced studio audience from the Wally Ballou Auditorium on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about the discovery of fragments of purple dyed textiles from the copper mining site of Timna in southern Israel dated to around 1000 BCE. What were rustic copper miners in the desert doing with textiles dyed with purple made from Mediterranean mollusks? What do these fancy-schmancy textiles say about trade, economics, and political organization in the early Iron Age? And are they literally schmatas fit for a king? All right, should we start with the lightning round? <laughs> sure. Um, what's, what's the most memorable purple thing that you've encountered? Well, otherwise. when I was... When I was a young lad, purple was my favorite color, and my parents allowed me to paint. My, I, had, I had a bedroom on the upstairs floor, and I had sort of a room that I hung out in on the ground floor. They allowed me to paint that room a dark royal purple. Ooh. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And my purple also comes from my childhood because my grandmother uh, knitted or crocheted me a purple jumper, not a British jumper sweater, but a full, you know, dress type jumper, which I don't know if you guys know what it is, but no. yeah, exactly. I'm trying to visualize it. It's, it's basically a jumper is, is um, a sleeveless dress that's meant to be worn over a shirt. That's what a jumper is. And so I had this purple jumper with um, an R, my initial. Um, <laughs> so what color purple. was the R? Um, it was I, so I don't really know how to knit, but it was it was done with stitching. So it was it was like different types of stitching, like yeah. almost holes in in the. So, so that that's very close to what we're talking about today. It's uh, it's almost exactly. Not really, <laughs> but let's go with that. <laughs> no, I I think that that's the perfect that's the perfect setup for for these mysterious. Yeah. It is dyed wool. That's true in that sense. I I yeah yeah. It is and it's a, shmata. it's a it's a tunic. It's a tunic. It's a full full out tunic. Yeah, it was special. And it was special. It was special. It made you feel elite. That's right. That's right. And I liked it. I you know hated handmade things in general. Um, didn't we all? But uh, but um, this I liked because I liked my grandmother. Okay. Are there pictures? I don't think so actually. And I was just wondering what happened to it. It's not the kind of thing that you would throw out or put with, you know, the, the um, Salvation Army stuff, but maybe that's what happened to it. I don't know. There's so many touchstones on this story to what we're going to be talking about. 
This right. is true. What's what's your purple, Alex? You know, I don't really have I don't really have a purple clear purple association. I made some coleslaw the other day. There you go. <laughs> Still in the refrigerator, and that was that was quite purple. Because I like the I like the purple cabbage uh, much better than the green cabbage. Oh really? Yeah. It's, I I don't think there's any functional difference, but from these from a, an aesthetic point of view. Right. Well, that also fits into our into Very our. Much uh, so. That's yeah. true. And yeah. uh, apparently, the lack of cabbage in the southern Negev was what prompted them to go with textiles as a means of identification and you know so uh, should uh, we actually state what it is we're talking about okay. <laughs> well these purple these little purple schmata fragments dyed wool from the 11th century 11 10th 11 10th a big waffle there for all the precision we get a little bit of a waffling on the 11th or the 10th it, but the tenth, uh, the tenth, that's the two sigma. Um, <laughs> um, I was just saying, and I guess reading circa a thousand BC, which is right on the cusp there. Right on the cusp. It's right on the cusp. So, so if you were a copper miner in in the southern Negev, right on the cusp there, <laughs> around a thousand BC, um, what would you be doing with uh, little fragments of dyed purple? wool showing them off because it had a big r on it well yeah so so first of all there's this site that's known for copper production it's a copper production site and on this site they have found the recent excavations have found fragments of wool fabric and and just wool in general but some woven some i guess not finished being woven yet maybe, I'm thinking of that one photo, um, which are dyed purple or partially dyed purple. So right. sheep's wool, because sheep's wool takes, takes the color better. And uh, the site is Timna. And this is a very exciting find. It's some kind of a uh, elite burial. And from this, they extracted these three pieces of dyed wool, which they have scientifically demonstrated comes from Murex. It's the real deal. It's the royal purple. Right. Yeah. None, of, none of that fake purple that you see all the time that people are wearing. None of that indigo, indigoing, indigone. <laughs> the real stuff. And of course, it's quite noteworthy because we have so little dyed textile material from the Southern Levant. But if you were going to find any, of course you would find it in the, in the, reach, the deep reaches of the, of the desert. Well, that, and that's one of the interesting things that, that um, you know, the dyeing industry, the purple dye industry is associated with the North Coast. That... Well, undoubtedly the- <laughs> They were doing it locally. <laughs> they brought huge the tanks filled like with the, these shellfish that, and smashed them up <laughs> down there in the desert. Well, the garment undoubtedly came, and I think they said, you know, they, they demonstrated also that it's probably from the Phoenician coast. Right. Um, that there are some murex shells from Somalia or something like that, but this isn't that type of murex. Right. And so the, this garment made its way, wound its way down 
into the deep desert and whoever is wearing it is now considered a king or an elite or a potentate of some sort of this, of this tribal kingdom that, uh, that is leveraging its control over the, over the mines in Thainan and Timna to create a footprint that up until now had been missed, but now we can fully appreciate the pastoral, nomad, pastoral, tribal kingdom of Edom. Right, uh, an industrial giant. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh in the desert. Um, kind, well, of, kind of level of, of production. Tens of hundreds of thousands of tons of, of slag, precisely dating to this period after the Egyptians were there, being interested in the copper and, but then they got all, they collapsed thanks to their own defeat weakness or something and then went away, leaving the tribal nomads to create this huge industrial complex that su supplied the entire Mediterranean, nay the world with, with uh, this vital, vital commodity in exchange for Purple schmatas. I was going to say <laughs> purple woolen schmatas or jumpers, as we now know they're termed. <laughs> so there are so many different directions we can take this conversation, and I'm sure we will. Yeah. Well, but but what, the first thing I wanted to to uh, we need to disam disambiguate. Well, right, right. So so first of all, um, what is has often been said about this time period and and this association with um, mining and Edom is, is this phrase, King Solomon's Mines, right? And that's a phrase that's been picked up by various news, news outlets over the last several decades, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went back to the Bible to try to figure out if King Solomon's Mines are actually in the Bible and you know, they're not. <laughs> so um, I, I, I uh, wanted to disambiguate or dis, just something um, that what? I think what you've done is you've dissed Solomon. I dissed Solomon. <laughs> mm -hmm. I uh, so Solomon did lots of stuff in the South, like he he is associated with uh, trading, maybe a naval um, expedition to Etzion Geber, but but um, he's not associated with mining. Well, that's been disambiguated. Also, that's no longer a thing. Oh. Um, See, I think we're getting ahead. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I, I think thought this was background. The, I think we're getting the putting the the cart before the horse. Okay. Um, in terms, I think we have to start with the object itself, right, and then right. move out to the larger geopolitical, chronostratigraphic, chronosynclastic infundibulum kind of um, data, and then inference building. Okay, right. but I'm just going to finish my point, which was... Um, <laughs> Screw what you just said. I'm going to say which, what I was... Which was only, did either of you all know that there was an 1885 book called King Solomon's Mines by Sir H. Ryder Haggard? Sure. Oh, of course you did, right? I didn't know that. Um, which led the there's a Grateful Dead song called King Solomon's Marbles. I didn't know that. And a whole series of movies. Uh, yeah, I believe Farley Granger uh, starred in. in I'd one. have to open another Wikipedia page to find that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, simply, that's simply not going to happen. No, I can't do it. All right, <laughs> now now I'm very now I'm done. 
Um, well, I, the, see, look, first of all, it's great that they even found this thing. Correct. Yes. It's, it's a testimony to our colleagues, um, you know, acumen in the field to find these little dirty fibery things. Yes. And then to carefully analyze them using, um, you know, gas chromatography. Right. And, and then to date them with, you know, precision, lightning precision to this, this period of the 11th or maybe the 10th centuries. That's, that's really fantastic. And, it, and, we, should, and we should say kudos to their right. use of science and archaeology. Right. And let's remember that, that even though they're digging in historical periods, they're digging as prehistorians. So they're, they're very adept, they're very used to and adept and understand that they need to be as careful and methodical and fine-grained as possible in order to get any good information that, uh, from, from the site of Timna, that, these, that, the big, that the big shovels will no longer work, that they really need to work in this very careful, refined way. And they succeeded admirably in this particular case. Yeah, yeah. Um, our, hat, our hats are, are, are off to them. <laughs> and our purple wool hats are off to them. And so the question then, then becomes for me, okay, let's say it's an, an elite burial. I have no, I have no problem. Wait, can we back up? Is it a burial? I thought I read that it comes from like the, the waste area with the industrial. Oh yeah. It was like a garbage hump. Yeah. Dump. Yeah. There were there was something else, elite. but there is an elite burial. Okay, so I missed the elite burial. No, I it, I think it, it might not have been in this article. Okay. Oh yeah, so the finds came from a context close to bedrock, defined as a mixed locus that represents a shallow deposition of waste embedded in reddish sediments and crushed sandstone. So it's it's garbage. Um, right. Which um, which makes it actually um, that much more interesting definitely that somebody lost track of this or that or threw it out or or something and but then the question really becomes again before the geopolitical blah blah you know how did it get there what what's it doing there and what does it represent what can we learn from it <laughs> what do we learn from this um so so the site itself is a copy people like fancy things People like right. fancy things, but then the other stuff that before they found this purple stuff is um, the other exciting things about this copper mining site is there's other evidence that there are elites at this site. So, so for instance, um, there's evidence or archeological evidence for better cuts of meat having been used at this site, like analysis of bones and, and I suppose butchering and so on. It's better cuts of meat that, that were represented here and also fish that were brought all the way from the Mediterranean. So these finds were like a couple of years before the purple stuff. And um, so it's been known for some time that there are elites living, living in this mining site or, or involved somehow in this mining site. I go back to my earlier statement. Yes. Rich people like fancy stuff. Right. And there's a, there's a continuity, there's a thread of continuity with this purple dye uh, beginning as early as sometime in the Middle Bronze Age, in the 19th century BCE, 
all the way down to here, where this murex dye is, is a valued commodity, a valued substance. So when it does show up, we can then infer that we're dealing, about, dealing with prestige items, with elite status goods. Right, and, and it becomes an, an, even, an even more um, kind of fancy and ritualistic thing and uh, dyeing uh, elite fabrics, fabrics with the trelet and argamon and and then in, by the by the Roman period, there's uh, there's you know the, there's an accepted exchange rate for different kinds of dyes, and there's a whole series of edicts about who can wear who can wear what purple, what kind of purple, and so there are these sumptuary. It, it feeds into these sumptuary kinds of practices and that become formalized over time legally, ritually, culturally. Um, rich people like fancy stuff and they like to uh, keep the fancy stuff to themselves. Right. Yeah, could, could we back up? Cause here's what, um, and, and I think one of you said this already, but, um, uh, but I'm really slow. So, so we have the miners who are doing the work in the mines. And we're also saying that there are supervisors on the site. Because... I'm not saying that. Okay. So this is something that we need to talk about maybe. Maybe they're like the, the, the dwarves. They're all kind of an egalitarian society. <laughs> they go down to the mines every day. They dig, they come back. One day they find, you know, this, this girl has wandered into their house. <laughs> and... And then all sorts of weirdness ensues. Um, and no. All right. So, so my point was going to be more along the lines of if I were a copper miner, I wouldn't be wearing my best purple to work in the mines. Right. Well, e even if I were eating really good steak in the evenings, I, to keep my energy up, which I don't know if that's what that's all about or not, but uh, I wouldn't be wearing my good clothes in the mines. So so, discuss. Right, so, this is, so this could be a dignitary, a leader, a, someone not directly working in the mines, but part of the society who had the un unfortunate situation of dying at the site. And right, or just tearing, catching his or her right. garment on a, on a rusty nail and right, okay. you know, shredding it. Right. I think there are so many different ways to explain the appearance of this. Well, that's the thing. Fragments that, that immediately building it into a, or using it as a foundation for a hierarchical society that um, ultimately is, you know, <laughs> invisible nomad kingdom. Um, right. Seems like, it seems like, like a little stretch. Right. And there are lots of little tidbits throughout the couple of articles on, this, on, this, uh, on these textiles. Um, and one of them sort of, in, you know, sort of mentions the role of metallurgical specialists in, in different societies and how they have a certain degree of status. On the other hand, there's certainly lots and lots of ethnographic evidence that miners and metal producers at a certain level don't have any real status that they're like all the the lowest level of any prestige item or any craft specialization that they're not well compensated and that they're not necessarily 
well regarded by society, other than to say that they perform a very important part of that society, but they don't reap the benefits. Right, right. So, um, so what to do with these three fragments? You know, what kind of a society do you want to build? And part of the narrative behind early Edom at Wadi Fainan and now extending to Timna is the existence of, the Edom, of an Edomite kingdom uh, that is hierarchical, but much later, but later and nomadic. And it's interesting that the word is always nomadic as opposed to pastoral, that this is a group of, of people who are not settled, but yet have a kingdom and even have thereby having a king. And so the nature of the institution is different than that in settled societies. And this is a small little, you know, brick in the wall for, for, this, for this edifice. Uh, and the question is to me, is that what we have here? Well, it, at this point, it should be pointed out that there are large Edomite settlements, Tawilan and uh, Busera, one or two others. There are Edomite-ish cult sites, Horvat Kitmit, there's one or two others. And they're all much, much later. Right. We're all the okay. eighth century right. at the earliest. Yeah, right. that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and as appealing as all of this, you know, invisible kingdom stuff is. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that anymore. I I, I watched the terminology invisible kingdom. <laughs> uh, I don't want I don't want to be canceled over that. I'm gonna, no, no, you don't. If I'm going to be canceled. It'll be something good. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but, you know, it's also, status aside, this region, going back many, many thousands of years earlier, was obviously a big old um, mineral and metallurgy kind of center. At, and at the beginning of the fourth millennium, you have two ginormous, by you know, local standards, sites that appear for a few hundred years that are major copper mining or processing and uh, sites down in the southern Arava, Tel Magas and Hujerat uh, al-Guzlan, which simply proves that A, it's a great region for copper mining and production and distribution and that people settle down um, with or without um, kingdoms or with or without hierarch you know complex hierarchical organization in in this region and then they split apart and they did their own did their own thing i guess because they're nomads and uh so so i'm not i'm not necessarily buying this this argument that at a thousand um you have a kingdom because I want to see more kingly kinds of right. manifestations. And I think what, what I think what the scholarship is suggesting is, is that it's a kingdom, but it has a different set of rules. And we should have different expectations and that we should not use the same kinds of metrics that we use for the traditional sedentary kingdoms of the Southern Levant. And that's fine, because that's what we all do with whatever 
kind of material we have. We always say, oh, well, this is different. It's not the same as the stuff that, that we're used to or that we used to have. My interest in all of this is that we're filling up the landscape. And I think that's a really important part of this research is that we've, the, the Mediterranean zone and the, the, even the agricultural zones like the Northern Negev, the Jordan Valley, these are all well known and filled up. But is, but, isn't this a dark age? <laughs> but now we're starting to fill up the landscape in with other kinds of groups and settlements and peoples. Places like this in the deep desert, uh, we're starting to find evidence of smaller kinds of political formulations and polities, um, like the what we now have in the ninth century at Moza, this little temple, and the Moza polity. My own work at Tel Sipori uh, in the um, in also in the eleventh century, and some kind of polity there. And and I think that's the important thing is that we now know that we have lots of different socio-spatial organizations and arrangements, lots of different people who are leveraging their small slice of the environment, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's based on metallurgy or whether it's based on herding or whether it's based on agriculture or whether it's based on a vacuum uh, because there is no longer any, you know, late Bronze Age city-state system or Egyptians or anything else. And we're beginning to, to really find, you know, figure out that there's a lot of different peoples yeah. And they all have a certain amount of logistical expertise that allow them to buy a purple schmata. So what's your take on the whole um, telemasos polity? Right. And, and tell me, we should, we should point out to our listener that telemasos is a site in the, sort of Beersheba kind of region that it has been proposed that in the 11th and 10th century was the center of a polity, a series of, uh, and there were a series of settlements around it that represented something, thing. Right, well, and, and, and I think that's a good example of, of one of these things, one of these kinds of little polities uh, that's out there. Um, and I think that what is lacking is some kind of big synthetic overview. Okay, of so here's my here's my opportunity with the big synthetic <laughs> overview. Okay. Um, no, I'm I'm gonna just um, muddy the conversation, which has been at a very high level, I must say, for the last. Couple then we'll have of to years. take it. To, we'll have to take it to the dry cleaner. Well, <laughs> I, I can lower it. Down I guess that's the big question. If we have elite garments, do we have dry cleaning? Well, that is an important question. But I wanted to raise a. <laughs> um, I, I probably shouldn't even raise it, but you know, the question of the 10th century existence of the polity of, of, of the ancient Israelites. Um, is there a kingdom of David and Solomon round about a thousand BC, right? When this purple is showing up down here. Um, and that's something that's been debated um, on a number of different levels for a really long time, you know, is it exactly as the Bible says it is, and most scholars don't think it's really that big, but the question is, does it exist at all? Is it made up from sort of transposed onto earlier periods from something that existed later on? And um, is it a small polity with many other small polities? What, what is this Telmasos 
um, sort of area. Uh, you know, does it relate to that? Does it not relate to that? So these, I just want to throw out so that our listeners, because I'm sure we have more than one right now, but maybe not. Um, not right now. Maybe not right now. Uh, they're, all, uh, they're all picking up their dry cleaning right now. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so. Um, I'm all right, sure well, here's my objection. I think, I, I think that this word polity covers a multitude of sins. And without a little bit of specificity about what kinds of political arrangements there are and, and how that's founded on socioeconomic kinds of uh, structures, I think it's just kind of a big waffle word. And that we, we just say, well, you know, there, there, there was a big building and there's some sites ar around it, so there's a polity. But we have no idea how it works. And, and obviously, because it's in a desert or a, there are nomads, we, our expectations are even lower. We should expect more from these people in terms of, in terms of manifestations and, uh, and emanations and instantiations. Oh, I do not want to play Scrabble with you with right now. Holiday is a really good Scrabble word too. And it's also a really good word to stick into like graduate school papers, I think. Yeah, um, I, that's the problem. I've never had a problem with, um, you know, with, with wonky terminology because we have to communicate. We have to use some words. Well, and <laughs> right. Okay. You just said these people, so I'd rather call them a polity. I, I mean, I'd like to do the whole thing in interpretive dance, but I doubt our, <laughs> I doubt our listener would, would benefit in any way, shape, or form. But th this is to say, I agree with you, polity is overused, and it's very imprecise. Just the way tribe and state and empire are, are in the same exact way. But on the other hand, we have to use something, and there is something to these things, whether it's, you know, building A at Telling Sipori, whether it's the temple at Moza, whether it's whatever is happening at Tel Masos, in the 11th century, we get lots and lots of disparate information, dis disparate data that point to uh, some low-level elites trying to wedge their way in there. <laughs> Look at you calling them low-level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Um, but that's interesting because, you know, there, there's an article and I'm, I'm looking for the, for the exact title, but, you know, one of the, 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 the key people involved in, in this in very important new discovery at Timna um, wrote a recent piece um, kind of deriding the architectural bias of, you know, political, political archaeology. It's like, huh. okay. So, and that's fine because that's what works in the deep desert where you don't have these kinds of things. Um, on the other hand, you know, what do you call all of the technological, archa uh, technological architecture of, of the Wadi Fainan and Timna? It's architecture. It's just right. a different order. Uh, right. it's industry. It's my, right. It's industrial. Right. Exactly. And, and industry implies political organization. It's not like individual people right. are just going out and doing all this. No, it implies centralization of some sort. That's the, that's, the, that's the big question to me, is that what are the thresholds? 
when does it go from um, just, you know, homesteaders out there to something above that, to something above that? And what are the the levels and what are the signs? Right. Should we be looking at it it like Deadwood? Should we be looking at like, you know, Sutter's Mill? Should we be looking at it like mining planets in in the, uh, you know, in the Star Trek world? You know, there's lots and lots of analogs, both from uh, speculative fiction to historical times. Yeah, it's, it's more than, I'd have to say it's more than just homesteaders, okay? I, I, somewhere less than a mining planet and more than <laughs> homesteaders. Uh, I, I think you do need, I think you do need a power structure, a uh, political power structure and, and an economic uh, desire to increase one's economy, improve one's economy, and you need some sort of social structure where, you know, who are these workers and why are they willing to work for the, I'll say, state, but I'm not claiming. Right, but these nomadic groups, tribal, if you want to call them that, or pastoral, or whatever kind of association that they have, they do have a structure. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And now we're being able, now we, we're able to to sort of flesh out that structure a little bit, at least in terms of, you know, some prestige objects. Uh, the question is, at what point do you call it a kingdom? Right, right. And why are you even using the term kingdom if it's not the kind of thing that we know very, very well from, right. you know, the, you know, sedentary societies? Well, we, we know other kinds of tribally sorts of kingdoms or tribally things that are very, very well organized and very well documented. So for example, in the old Babylonian period along the Euphrates, you have all of these tribes and confederations, um, one of which or sort of something manifests itself eventually as the Amorite kingdom, They, they take over. Um, in in Mesopotamia, as their, you know, as the leading political entity, polity concept, but there's all sorts of dealings back and forth, and and you know, old Babylonian kings are always writing to these guys out in the boondocks, these who are sort of chiefs, but a little bit above chiefs. There's not exactly king. Do do kings need territories? Right. And, and another good analog that actually was raised. Uh, in, in these articles um, of the Mongol Empire, in which they're ne- it's never a Mongol state or kingdom, it's always a tribal confederation. Mm-hmm. And these tribal confederations are based on charismatic leadership. And ultimately that charismatic leadership leads to an empire, a very brief empire. And from the perspective of the Edomites or any of these kinds of agglomerations from the Iron Age, the Mongol Empire disappears. It really disappears without much of a material trace. And, and to me, that's very interesting because for the Moabites, the Except Ammonites, genetically. I'm sorry? Except genetically. Except genetically, right, right. But in all, and that is an important observation, but in all other ways, it disappears. Yeah. And it disappears for a number of reasons. They, are, you know, they don't have any kind of institutionalized religion. And so they assimilate into the places in which they find themselves. And, all sorts of other things. There's also a lot of, you know, the fact that that the Mongol elites 
fashion themselves on, you know, sort of Chinese dynastic traditions. And so they ultimately become Chinese dynasts, or at least some of them. But mm -hmm. what I'm getting at here is, is that we have sort of this disappearance of Ammon, Moab, and Edom right. on the landscape. They have a very brief period of materiality, which we recognize, as you mentioned, in the 8th, 7th centuries, and then they disappear. And now we have some archaeologists saying that there is a level of materiality with a political component to it in as early as the 11th century. Nothing is explained about what happens to them. They, again, sort of, it, they, they sort of, you know, disappear and appear from in the 10th and the 9th, and then they have this period of fluorescence, at least Moab and Edom, or Edom a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and that coming and going, appearance and disappearance, I think is, is an important feature of these groups. Yeah. And, 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 and must, ahead. let me just finish this, and must in some way relate to the charismatic abilities of their leaders. So if we get materiality in the 11th century, it's probably because there is, you know, a charismatic leader that pulls everything together. And if we get materiality, let's say for the Ammonites in the late 10th, early 9th century, then again, we have, there must be something, some charismatic leadership that never fully institutionalizes. And so we get the Ammonites appearing and then disappearing. And the same thing for the Moabites um, in the ninth century. Um, and then of course the Edomites in the eighth, seventh century. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really interesting bunch of thoughts because to add to the other end of it, so everybody's getting conquered and absorbed by Babylonians and exiled and mixed in whatever, um, but the Edomites, kind of re-emerge from all this um, more than the Ammonites or Moabites in the Roman period kingdom of, I can never pronounce it right, Edomia, Edomia, how do you pronounce it? Edomia. Edomia, okay. So, so, um, so they, at the, at the tail end of all this, there's something about them that they don't disappear historically. They, they disappear, their material culture changes, everything changes, but they're, um, the Edomites, reform um, in some sort of socio-political manner and stay around for a couple more centuries where, where their other neighboring polities, and I'm using the word polity, disappear from historical, in, in historical terms. Um, but, um, but, and I wonder if that, has, it probably doesn't, but I wonder if that has anything to do with, um, they, maybe they really did form in some sort of, um, I'm having trouble expressing it, but in some sort of more material or, or solid way on an earlier date, um, around about a thousand than some of these others. And it gave them kind of a head start so that they didn't disappear as fully as others. But it's all mere speculation on my part. Well, okay. And so that's an important point. There's a lot of speculation that we take of, we're taking very small sort of atomic level data. Yeah right, three pieces of textile or two pieces of textile and a piece of fiber and, uh, and other slight evidence for elites and we're building kingdoms on them. That's um, true, that's true. Um, see, I, I think that this is all wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, because the evidence that we do have for 
materialized Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites, so we'll, we'll expand the focus a little bit, suggests that there were later on actual kingdoms using the same kinds of models as the Israelites, the Judeans, the Arameans, and the Phoenicians. That is to say, a, a national deity, Paus, Kemosh, and Milcom. Um, Zuntai. <laughs> I need a I need a tissue now, and <laughs> as well as national scripts and the same and similar kinds of traditions of of leaders of of actual kings and I don't remember any of their names who who are fighting against each other uh, who are fighting against who eventually fight against. Uh, common enemies like uh, the Assyrians and, and, or the Arameans and the Assyrians. Um, but it's all, it's all very much later. And that when they, when they really, really, really do materialize, they've got palaces, they've got gods, they've got kings, they've got monumental inscriptions, they've got scripts, they've got identifiable traditions of seals and ceilings. They've got their own, um, sets of, of uh, proper names. And they're not, um, oh, you know, the market disappeared, so we're going to disappear now into some kind of dematerialized, vaporous, uh, you know, political, political formation again, and then rematerialize into this very kind of traditional Iron Age, along the, these very traditional Iron Age kinds of models. Um, I think that there has to be something else going on in this period. And again, we're only talking about what, 200 years, yeah. 300 years between the end of the Egyptian interest in the region uh, and the, the full fledged materialization of, of kingdoms with capitals by 800 after 800. Do you really have to say a little bit earlier because each of these kingdoms Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, there's a certain materiality slash chronological. And, and they've got their pottery traditions. And, uh, right, but the Ammonites are a little bit earlier. The Moabites are a little bit more robust. And clearly the Edomites are... Bringing up the tail. They're bringing up the rear and they're in the most marginal zone. So there is a little bit of chronology along with the materiality. Yeah. And then, and I don't That's disagree with... their fault. Right, and I don't disagree with anything you said. I think there's a, another component to this that it's an interesting juxtaposition, and that is we know about these people. Um, well, through the Bible, we know all sorts of stuff about these people through the Hebrew Bible. Yes, and whereas normally uh, our 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 current way of looking at things is to, you know, sort of not disregard, but, you know, put that biblical, those biblical kinds of descriptions uh, as lower order. Yeah. The only way we sort of know about these people in a fuller way is through these, you know, biblical descriptions. So, so we're playing a little bit fast and loose. Oh, until, they, until they start writing for themselves, which they do. 
Right, but we don't have so much, right. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. we, they probably had a lot of writing, we just don't, don't right, have right. it. Right, and yeah. that's the thing. And the, the, the writing we know best is from the Moabites. And it conforms very nicely to the biblical data. So that's good. But the Edomites, we don't have so much writing. Um, right. So. so this kind of brings me back to, so, so <laughs> I mentioned King Solomon's minds already. I mentioned the Bible, <laughs> but, uh, but um, from, from a sort of international or interregional perspective, um, another, I, I want to talk about long distance trade. Can we talk about long distance trade for a minute? Let's talk um, about long distance trade. Cause that's, that's one of the two pillars on which this kingdom is based. Right. Long distance trade and elite prestige items. Right. And which are, which are one and the same in terms of the purple dye. So, yeah. so we said already that this dye is manufactured up in Phoenicia and um, that. Presumably. Uh, Presumably, but we also we also already said that the Red Sea also has murex snails, but um, it's yeah, not but, coming from uh, there. Uh, eh. uh, all right. Presumably, do we do we don't all agree that it's coming from Phoenicia? No, no. no. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're it's coming from Phoenicia, and it needs to be the 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 shells, the snail shells need to be crushed, have their dye glands extracted up close to where they are found. You can't transport them in an unprocessed it, form. In itself, it's a very complicated technology. Right, right. Well, this is another issue. Everyone always says it's a complicated technology. And it is. They figured a lot of stuff out without having the science. But it, but at a, at a functional level, it's not that complicated because they did it. Right. They figured it out and then they, could, and then they made it. They manufactured it for Thousands of years. Right, right. Okay, right. Fair but enough. it is a labor intensive and complicated. You, you need to know what you're doing. Like I couldn't you pick up one doing. of these shells and get the dye out. I don't think right. I could. Manage, once you right? do that, it's done. And then right. they just continue to produce it. And this is that issue that I always have with the overuse of the term complexity. And if you go to any ASOR meeting and uh, you can, you know, you can just, you know, take a drink every time you hear the word complicated and right. everyone would be completely drunk and out of their- are. Right, by the first morning. Yeah. By the first, right. Because everything is so complicated, but it's not so complicated. They master a technology and then they leverage it. That's all it is. Once the technology is mastered, the complexity is gone. Then it's just a matter of production and especially distribution. That's the big thing. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's all about the marketing. It's, it's about the marketing. It is. Exactly. And the logistics. Right. And the logistics. But here's the okay. thing. So, so we're, we're the, the Phoenicians have a corner on the market in, in manufacturing because they have the, they're in the right location. They can collect the most snails and, and they've been doing it for thousands of years. So it is not complicated for them. So they're doing it. And um, they are um, selling it um, to a variety of different other, and I'm using the word polities. They're selling it to a variety of different other polities in the, oh, we don't know in the that. region. What? We don't, we don't know that. Know. Okay, okay, so we can talk about down the line trade. We can talk about, well, I, okay, so let me just get to the one thing that's, that's, that we don't know, and then you guys can go off and do whatever okay. you want to do. Um, the one thing that, so they're making it up there. So we the, my question, what? We know nothing. <laughs> If we got into a time machine and went back there, we'd be shocked. I know. It's how true. Long we are. Wouldn't that be fun? I'd like to go back there in a yeah, time machine, but only like for like a day. I don't want to stay there and be imprisoned and I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, <be> the queen. <laughs> all right. So they're, 
they're making the dye up there. Are they dyeing the fabric and then exporting the fabric or are they exporting yeah. the dye? And none of the articles talked about that. Yeah. And I don't think we can know, but I think it's an interesting question. So I wanted to raise it. So now yeah. It's an interesting question. I assume that they're, that it's the finished product that they're exporting. So it is sheep who are sheared up north, whose wool is woven and dyed up north. And well, there are no, no sheep in, at Timna. Right, right. So it has to be sheep from somewhere else. Right, exactly. That's very and, good point. There are no sheep at Timna. Right, and I just, right, we don't, I, right, are they, yeah, it can't be the dye. Right. Even though they the raw even dye, that's not going to be pots that have stains on them that, from, right. from Sarepta and Ugarit and Tel Quezon and Shikmona and Kabri, but it has to be the finished product. It really does. It really, because, or, yeah. Because it's all part of the, the process is somewhat unified. Yeah. You know, we're going to make a, we're going to dye a textile product. Yeah. And so first we have to get the dye and we have the textiles and we put it all together. And I suspect that there's lots and lots of Mesopotamian data on this kind of thing. It's yeah. very complex. <laughs> it's very complex. <laughs> the whole process. <laughs> well done. Right. Um, it's not like going to Mars, because that's easy. And we see that on YouTube. So we know that <laughs> But this stuff that happened in the uh, Iron Age, man, talk yeah. about complexity. Right. And it's like, it's like uh, the actual mining and metallurgy process in the desert itself. Right. Which, which simply suggests to me that if you put people around resources for hundreds, if not thousands of years, maybe they'll even figure out what to do with it. And, and maybe I, they'll take a couple of leaps along the way. Exactly. Right. And, and we can just go back to my favorite site. Oh, hello. Leave a group of people around us around a bunch of resources for a couple hundred years, and guess what? They figure it out. They right. figure out how to make fruit trees and grow olives and do all this other kind of stuff. Right. 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 <laughs> and the same thing with metallurgy. Right. right. And and you know, every once in a while someone will come along and, and you know take it to the next level. Right. For whatever reasons, like, oh, we have these orders, we have to scale up production. Oh, you know, the stuff we're producing is really crap. We need to up our game quality wise. Right. Or there's a political vacuum. And so now we can sort of expand and imitate uh, all of these, you know, you know, more materialized polities that we've best, been watching. Best practices. Best practices. Exactly. Yeah. Best practices. That's well, it in a nutshell. But, but then how did, what was the market though? We, we know that, that uh, they, were, they were exporting gazillions of tons of copper during this period until the, until the Cypriot copper industry kind of pulled the rug out from under them or so the story goes. Um, what, were they getting, what were they getting in return besides a few a few scraps of dyed schmatas. Well, uh, how, did, how, did, how did it even get back to the desert? And where is all this other stuff that they were paid in? Well, well, okay, so that's a really good question. But because we know this was an elite product, and the interesting thing is it's spread throughout the region and beyond for thousands of years, purple, the royal purple, right? So it, it's, it is considered an expensive product in itself. And also no one was saying, like, it's not like um, the Edomites 
are saying by the eighth century when they exist for sure. It's not like they're saying, oh, we're not gonna deal in anything purple because the Judahites have it as their elite, their priests are wearing it, right? So it's not like a, we're not gonna do it because it's their thing or we're gonna do it and we don't want them to do it. It's not, like consuming, it's not like consuming pork. It's not a group identity right, thing. Right, right, exactly. It's a group buy-in thing because it's, it's elite. Cause it's exactly, because it's elite. So I can't answer the question about like, what are the Phoenicians getting in return? But whatever they're getting, they're getting a whole lot of it because- Well, the, the Phoenicians are, are getting presumably, you know, copper eventually, right. maybe, okay. but- what are what are the what are the the proto Edomites getting? Right, and um, that's but but there I, I think that part. Right, so that part I think is explained by looking at prestige commodities in today's society up until notions of fair trade have crept in. So things like uh, cannabis and coffee; these are things in which uh, the producers of these things. Make, had traditionally made almost nothing. So coffee growers. Coffee growers made nothing. They harvested their crop, tea, the same thing. They, and they make very, very, very little. So if you go back to, you know, if you look at the, in, throughout the 20, early, 20, throughout the 20th century at coffee production, the people growing the coffee plants made nothing. And all of the, the money was in the logistics and then in the value-added final product, you know, mm -hmm actual coffee. And I, I think you could probably say the same thing for petroleum, right? So, you know, these, these countries that were churning out um, oil, the, the workers and whoever even had the land originally didn't make a lot. It was the elites who were, who, who figured out the logistics. Right. And that's called, and that's the oil trap. Right. Okay. Uh, it, it, it you, you take a society, you give it this w reliance on one right. resource, and it, it hugely intensifies stratification within the society, mm -hmm. and but the people at the bottom um, make it not Right, and, it, and it's a, it's, I think it probably works in all commodities. I think it, it goes this, it's the, probably the same for timber, and it's probably the same for cotton, and it's probably the same for all of these kinds of commodities, but I... I, you know, metal is probably a little bit more special, or can I say a refined industry? <laughs> because, you know, because there's a lot of technology involved and because you have to know what kind of products and you have to have some awareness of the market. And ultimately, the big question is, are these ingots being sent out or finished products? And, you know, that, that all has yet to be determined. So, so maybe we need to wrap this up and come to some grand conclusions. Um, which of you is going to give a grand conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> Buy low, sell high. <laughs> um, yeah, copper, it's good, you know, but does it take, does it really need a king? Do you really need king, kings or, of copper? That's a really good book title, The Kings of Copper or Copper and Kings. It alliterates well. Are all of these, are, are what we're looking at more akin to specialized pottery production in the Halaf, where you have every little household producing, or a couple of households producing elite status goods and distributing them, or is it organized much more hierarchically with an actual king? Or was every, you know, did every household have its own king or was there one king? Right. 
Right. That's I'm king of the castle. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm master of my own domain. <laughs> Um, and I don't have anything to sum up, even though I was the one who suggested summing up, but I will point out that these things are um, very carefully um, made. So like, it was, was it the weft that was um, purple in some cases, but the warp was not, or maybe I have it backwards. Um, and um, there's a matter of taste. Like I would never today wear a huge purple jumper. I would wear all black with like a little purple scarf or something. So maybe there's a matter of, you know, these elites have fashion sense. They're, they're I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to go back to this whole idea of of elites, because I, you know, as everybody, everybody has objects <laughs> or materials in their possession yes. that are um, exotic or diacritical or come from a great distance or are expensive, even if they're even if they're poor, and. Okay. Uh, you know, so you can just look around within arm's reach of wherever you're sitting and you're going to find some kind of funky thing that expresses your taste or you're trying to express your temporary um, ability to buy something or, or what that, and that doesn't necessarily make you an elite, much less a king. Right. And then there's the issue of scale. So we have three pieces of fabric. Does that, <laughs> you don't know if that's it? or yeah. if everybody had one. And that's the big issue, right? Pace, intensity, yeah. and scale. What yeah. is the scale of this? Does everybody have a shmata with purple dye or does only one person? And that we can't assess because it's, we just have too little of the material. But the scale of the, um, of, of this, of the, the scale of distribution of, of textiles, dyed textiles, is really the is is a really important part of this equation. Yeah, and we yeah. just right. We understand the scale of the of the export of of the the metals to a certain right. extent. But we don't understand the the imports. So they decided to. <laughs> Are you an exporter or an importer? <laughs> an import. Temporarily, I'm going to emphasize the exporting. That's not the importing. But Mandalay Industries. <laughs> you want to be my latex salesman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if you don't understand the scale, uh, or on both on all sides, or on all sides, then it's hard to tease out the whole you know socio-political spectrum that's represented. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's actually a very good place to wrap it all up. Um, because scale, we, we, don't, we don't know anything because we don't know the scale. <laughs> we know garnished. We know garnished. So we say to our colleagues, learn more, <laughs> get back to us. Learn more, speculate less. Well, speculating is the fun part. Yeah, well, that's very true. That's very true. I mean, otherwise we'd have no podcast. Well, that's very true. <laughs> that's right. Well, that was in its own way, somewhat edifying. As always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel for composing our theme music. And of course, we'd like to thank our sponsor, DeSoto, maker of the revolutionary 1934 Airflow with unibody construction. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.